Welcome everyone. We are continuing our study of Simha. We are in class number 75. Specifically, we have been studying, just to take you a little bit of the road that how we got here. We've been discussing, we were discussing the subject of worry, of the Aga. And how difficult worry is and how difficult it is to deal with. And we took the road of Shlomo HaMelech to figure out how to deal with it. And we stumbled or stayed at actually a pretty long time on the Pasuk that in the end says that we need a Davar Tov. We need something good in order to get rid of worries once and for all. And we're trying to figure out what this Davar Tov is, and then we figured out that Tov, real Tov, is great relationships, which of course, the most important is family, marriage, children, friendships by extension. A person who has Davar Tov, a person who has a great home, is a person that has the recipe not to have worries in their life. But that's easier said than done. And then we went into the trying to figure out exactly how that happens. And then we realized that the whole purpose of marriage is to be a mashal, a parable, a physical life example of a loving relationship that's supposed to be learned from that we could love the creator of the world. So then we understood that what it takes to have a great marriage is the same formula as what it takes to have a great marriage with the Creator. It works the same way. In fact, marriage was given just for that purpose. And then we explored that the way we have a relationship and the way we bond with the Creator in a big way is through our Amidah. And then we explain that the Amidah is the formula of a great marriage. And we've been studying what is it in the Amidah that we could take from to make our relationships great and the greatest relationship with Hashem to be awesome. We spent a few weeks on that about the subject of compliments, which is the subject of the beginning of the Amidah. But today we're going to the first word of the Amidah. It's not only the first word of the Amidah, but it's actually the first word of most encounters that we have with our Creator. The word is Baruch. We say Baruch Ata Hashem. This word Baruch has been the subject of a lot of talk amongst rabbis. What exactly does it mean? 
on a simple level, it's very hard to understand how we humans, creations of the Creator, can bless the Creator of the world. We've all gone to blessings from our parents, from rabbis. We get a beracha. We need something. We're desperate for something. We want something more. So we get a blessing from a great person that hopefully through their conduit, the blessing will be able to come on us and our lives. But how can we bless the Creator of the world? What does that mean? Baruch Atta Hashem. We're blessing the Creator. How does that make sense? He is the source of all blessing. What are you blessing Him? So there are different explanations to what this word Baruch means. Perhaps the most accepted one is that Baruch means the source of all blessings, not that we're blessing. We're saying, Baruch, you are any blessing that there is out there, you're the source of it. The word Baruch, in its grammatical lettering, is actually the same letters as the word Berech. The word Berech means the knee. Like it says in the Pasuk, Vayavrech et gemalim, which means he put the camels on their knees. So the word Baruch is not just saying, you are the source of all my blessings, but you're also bending your knees, so to speak. You're coming with humility. You're coming with a certain attitude of, I owe you. This is the way we approach the Creator of the world. Every time we talk to Him, we say, Baruch. We bend our hearts and sometimes our bodies. And this word Baruch that begins the Amidah may just be the greatest recipe that I can ever share with you. Because it tells us that the great relationship we're going to have with our Creator begins with humility. You need to have anava. And therefore, as we're connecting it to marriage, to have a great home, you need anava. You need humility. Today, this is obvious to me. Years ago, it wasn't. In fact, I remember being shocked, myself and others with me, when we were visiting a great Gadol, a great rabbi in Israel. It was going back maybe 20 years. And it was right before Rosh Chodesh, Rosh, Rosh Hashanah, excuse me. And we went during Elul time to get a little bit of Hizuk, a little of spiritual juice for the year. 
And I remember we sat by one of the great rabbis that we went to visit. And we were all younger, newly married with young children. And the question we wanted the rabbi to speak about was how it is that a person can merit a happy marriage and have great children. We know that it's something everybody wants, but yet very few people can actually say that they're fully satisfied. So we wanted to get the secret once and for all. What, what, what better time of year? Right before Rosh Hashanah. Maybe this could be our New Year resolution. What could be better than to make our marriages perfect, beautiful? Simcha, Gan Eden. And that our children could be the source of so much pleasure. Not just for now, but for hundreds of years. For eternity. It's a mother's and father's dream to feel the happiness and pride that come from their beautiful children. To have a beautiful family that is together, united. So we brought up the question. And we said, Rabbi, could you tell us what are the steps that we need to take to ensure that we will get what everybody wants, but seems so hard to actually achieve. So we're waiting, we have our papers and our pens, and we're ready to write. Maybe notebooks are going to be filled. I mean, it has to be a lot of details to this question. There has to be many points to make this happen. I mean, if it was easy, then everybody would be so happy in their marriages. It would be Gan Eden in every home. So it's got to be very long and detailed and so many points. And we're ready. We're ready. We have all the time in the world. And the rabbi says, he says, for a great home, a great marriage, great children, he says, you need one thing. Already you were shocked. One thing? Oh, it must be a big thing. What is that one thing? He says, you need anava. You need humility. That's it? Humility? He says, yes, that's it. If you're humble in your home, if you're humble with your spouse, and he said, and you're humble with your children. We didn't even know what he's talking about. To be humble with my children? What does that mean? So they should make Kiddush Friday night? What do you mean by that? I should be humble to my children. I could tell you sitting there that day, we didn't know what the rabbi was talking about. It was all new to us. I mean, we heard of humility before. 
I'm not sure if we knew what it meant really, but we certainly didn't think that that was the end all of a great home and great children. But that was the beginning of this new light that came into my life. That obviously it was so intriguing, it was worth looking into and studying further. And it became the guiding light of not just marriage, but it became the guiding light of all relationships. Marriage is the most important of relationships. But every relationship is a kind of marriage. So it all makes sense. When you come in front of the Creator in this marriage with the Creator of the world, the first thing you say is Baruch. If you don't come in with humility, then it's not going to work. And if you don't come into your relationships with humility, it's not going to be Gan Eden. Odds are it'll feel more like Gehinam. I know it's a little harsh to say. I wanted to wake you up a little. But that's the truth. Gehinam is pain. Any kind of pain is Gehinam. And Gan Eden is this great, amazing simha that a person has. Yes, it is possible that a person lives in a home with a full-time simha. It's possible. In fact, it's expected. So hard to imagine in today's society where people can hardly get along even for a short time. That a person could be married a hundred years and have a home full of simha. But our Torah says it is possible. But like anything else, it's not possible if you don't know how to do it. Like anything else in life that's good, it's never going to happen if you don't know the rules and you don't follow them. So here goes. Baruch. Humility, anava, the secret of all relationships. In fact, if you look at Havot Levavot, that awesome sefer, in that sefer he has 10 sections. What's unique about these sections is that they flow one into the other. It's one building block, the one on top of it, and then on top of it, one leads to the next. So just from studying the chapters and the way he put them, you already learn a lot. The first chapter is about emunah. That makes sense. How could you have a relationship with someone if you don't know they exist? Or you don't understand their existence. Sometimes you know somebody exists, but you don't really get them. Emunah means you understand that there's someone there and you know who they are. And you understand your relationship vis-a-vis that person. The next chapter 
Shara Bechina talks about appreciating all the details of the creation, all the kindness of the creation. Many, many people here, I'm sure, have seen Rabbi Miller's work on all the different creations, the apple and the bees and all the different things he spoke about. All of that, all of that mindset came from Shara Bechina. It all came from that chapter. He just expounded on it more. But that chapter is unbelievable. Going through all the creations and seeing the awesomeness, the wisdom and the kindness of the Creator that we see visibly every day in our lives. The third chapter, the third section, excuse me, is called Sha'ar Avodat HaElokim, Service of Hashem. And over there he writes, Mahi Avodat Hashem. I'm sure people in this room have heard the word servant of God. Oh, I serve God. I'm an Eved Hashem. We're serving God now. You tell that to a young man that you're serving God now. He thinks you're out of your mind. And actually, if we thought about it, we would think we're also out of our mind. What does it mean to serve God? That makes no sense. How could you serve God? Serving somebody means that somebody needs you. They could be very wealthy, but they need you. They need someone to carry their bags, so you're serving them. They need someone to make them food, so you're serving them. They need a massage, you're serving them. Whenever you serve somebody, somebody needs something and you're providing it. So now you tell your son, right now we're serving God. What? What does that mean? Didn't you tell me that God is perfect? Didn't you tell me that He created us? So how are you going to serve Him? What does that mean? What does He need from you? What could you give Him? So the whole definition of avodat Hashem, serving God, needs explanation. And that's the first thing he says. Mahi avodat Hashem. What does that mean? And he says over there, Mahut ha'avodahi. The essence of service. Service to Hashem is. Shemekabel ha'tova. That when somebody receives something good, Yityahes, his connection to the one who gave him. What kind of connection do you have with someone who does so much for you? Someone just gave you a kidney. You're about to say Baruch Dayana Emet. Just a few minutes more. And someone just came and said, Here, take my kidney. When you see that person a month or two later in the street, what's your yahas? What's the connection? What does that meeting look like? Are you going to stand up very upright with your nose up? Are you going to ignore the guy? You think that's going to happen? I bet not. I bet you're going to humble yourself. Maybe you'll bend a little. 
Maybe you'll rush over to give the person a hug. Maybe you'll give them the biggest hello and the biggest thanks. Maybe you'll go down on your knees because you don't know what to do for the person. That person gave you your life. What's the way you connect to that person as a result? It's called hachna'ah. Hachna'ah means you bend, you're humble. Anava. A person lends you a lot of money because you were getting thrown out of your house. You couldn't afford the mortgage and the bank was going to take the home. So someone gives you money, a lot of it, and you can't pay back. It hurts you if you're a good person and you can't pay back. It hurts you. You want to pay back, but you don't have it. So what happens when you see the person walking down the street? Someone who lent you millions of dollars to keep your home and you can't pay them. What is the way you associate to that person? How do you look at them? How do you talk to them? What's the attitude? It's called humility. Because there's nothing that you could do. You want to do, but there's nothing that you can do. But at the very least, you could be humble. You could show through your humility that you want to do. Through your humility, you're showing that I appreciate, I understand how much I owe, even though I can't pay back. But I want to. Says the Havot Levavot, when it comes to service of God, it doesn't mean that we're giving Him something that He needs. Rather, it's our attitude of appreciating how much He's given us, much more than a kidney. Two kidneys. And eyes, and legs, and ears, and a mouth, and a brain, and healthy cells, and blood, and a heart, and... How many ants can we go on? There won't be enough time this summer to do all the ends, even if we took no breaks. There's no end. So what does a person feel when they are in front of the one who has given them and continues to give them everything they have and they can't pay back? What does that feel like? The feeling is called anava, humility. It's called baruch. The way you enter the amida is baruch, is I have nothing to say except that I feel that I owe so much, but I can't pay you back. What can I do? It's the feeling of David al-Melech in Tehillim who says, Ma ashiv l'ashem. Hashem, what can I pay you back? Kol tagmulohi alai. So much kindness is on me, has been, is now, is going to be. What can I pay you? I know there's nothing to pay you. But I'm here. I'm ready. At least my attitude is, Baruch, I bend my knees to you. Not just physically. To bend the knees is easy. To bend the heart is what's expected. 
Baruch is bending our lev, our heart, in humility. In fact, the opposite of humility, which is arrogance, it is only arrogance that separates the great relationship between us and our Creator. If you ever wonder, what is the wall that doesn't allow somebody to connect to the Creator of the world? It's such an obvious connection. He only made us. He only gives us everything. If you think your father and mother are something important to you, Try again. What about the one who made your father and mother? How about if I tell your mother and father didn't really make you? How about if I tell you all the love they had for you? He gave them. How about if I tell you all the strength that they did for you? He really is in the background. Whatever you feel for your father and mother, and I hope you feel a lot, because there is no human on the planet that we owe more than our father and mother. But it's a drop in a very big bucket of what we owe the creator of the world. It's a drop in the Atlantic Ocean. So how could it be that a person loves his father, loves his mother so much? but not connected to the creator of the world. It's such an obvious connection. And the answer is, there's one wall, it's called arrogance. Just like humility is the key to this great connection, this great marriage. You, arrogance, ga'ava, is what blocks the marriage. In fact, as a hint, it's not what the Pasuk really means. But the Pasuk says, Anochi omed ben Adonai ubenechem. Simply Moshe Rabbeinu says, I stand between you and Hashem. I'm the middleman between you and God. But some explain beautifully, Anochi. You know what stands between me and my Creator? Anochi. My ego, my arrogance. With arrogance, there's no relationship. Not with the creator of the world and not in any marriage that expects Gan Eden. There is no such thing as a great marriage with arrogant people. It will never happen. They can try they can do whatever they want. They can travel. They can get remarried again. Try a third time too. An arrogant person can never have a great marriage. It doesn't work. Because the entry level of a great relationship is Baruch. That's a real piece of great advice. And who doesn't want 
to have in their current life this Gan Eden who doesn't want for their future when they get married to have Gan Eden who doesn't want great children but you need Anava when the Ramban sent a letter to his son not a long letter, it's a very famous letter, I'm sure many of you have read it. If you notice in that short letter, imagine you're the Ramban, you're one of the greatest humans that ever stepped on this planet, and you're writing a short letter to your son about things he should be careful during his lifetime, so that he should be a success and not a failure. Imagine I asked you to write a short letter to your children, or your grandchildren, about your experiences and what it would take to make a great life. And then you open up the Ramban. And basically all the Ramban talks about is anava, humility. There's really not much else in that letter. But you know the Ramban knows kola Torah kula, he knows the entire Torah. He wrote books on the entire Torah, on Humash, on Shas, and Halakha. You tell me that Ramban didn't have anything else to say? He didn't have to pull different areas of life and talk about them? All he speaks about is Anava. He tells his son, midat ha'anava. He says, just think about anava. That's what he tells his son. Shehi mida tova mikol hamidot tovot. It is the greatest of all midot. So let's just focus on that. Moshe Rabbeinu, all his greatness and all his fine qualities, yet the Torah only identifies one for us. Ve'aish Moshe anav me'od. Moshe was a very humble man. If you ever wanted to know what made Moshe Rabbeinu special. And just in case we missed it, which maybe a lot of us did, you know, it's possible to learn the entire Torah. It's possible to go to many classes and still miss this point. So in case we miss it, the creator of the world in Sefer Bereshit, in his Torah he writes the following, Vayomer Elohim, it's now up to time, to the time he's going to create men. So Hashem says, Naase Adam, let us make men. Betzalmenu, in our image. Let us make men. What does that mean? Let us make men. That seems like he had partners in creating the world. But we say Hashem Echad. Thinking there's more than one creator is blasphemy. It's one of the core points of Emunah. 
is this one creator to this world who has no partners. And then you open up the beginning of the Torah and already there's confusion. Na'aseh Adam, let us make man. Who is God talking to? Who is he consulting with? And comes the Midrash, Rashi brings it. Says Rashi, even though the angels didn't help the Creator, of course, that doesn't even make sense. He made the angels. Why would they help him? And says Rashi, Ve'yesh makom la'apikorsim lirdot. This is a great pasuk. For anybody who's an apikoros, who's a non-believer, this is a great pasuk to focus on. God just gave bullets to all the people out there who don't have emunah by saying, Na'aseh Adam, let us make men. Oh, look. What do you mean, ehad? What are you talking about? Right there, God Himself says, let us make men. You see, there's more than one creator. So why does Hashem write it if He doesn't need their advice and doesn't need their help? So why do He write it like that? This is one of the most amazing Rashi's you could ever read in your life. Says Rashi, Allah wa shalom, Becholzot, Becholzot means with all that damage, it's a lot of damage, that a person walks away with their emunah shattered and broken. They can't say Shema Yisrael anymore. That's a lot of damage control. Becholzot, says Rashi, despite all the damage that may happen because of this pasuk, lo nimna hakatuv. Hashem did not, did not decide not to write it. Lo nimna. I'm writing it anyway. Why? Because Hashem wants to teach us about anava, about humility. That even someone great he first asked permission of someone beneath them. You know, why didn't Hashem just write, be anav? He could have taken care of this issue. He could have written, let me make men, and then write somewhere else, by the way, be humble. Because Hashem knows that when He says be humble, There'll be a person who says, yeah, but not me. Yeah, if a regular person, not me, you know who I am? Or a person can say, yeah, of course it's good to be humble, but these are my children. So you understand, they're my children. Oh, and those, those people work for me. You don't understand, they work for me. Of course I'm humble to regular people, but they serve me, these people. Hashem knows that if He tells me and you to be humble, 
Everyone's going to have some sort of exception to that rule. It doesn't apply to me in this situation. Or it doesn't apply to me at all. You don't know who I am. So therefore, Hashem steps out and volunteers. And says, I myself am going to volunteer. And even though it will come at a possible cost of people veering off the derech, but this lesson is so critical that I must give it over this way, even if there's a danger involved. And that lesson is anava, no matter who you are. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't make a difference how much you've done for your children, how much you've accomplished, how much you've taught, how much you've given, how many lives you've saved. It doesn't matter. You're not the creator of the world. And even he is practicing anava. That means there's never an exception to this rule of anava, ever. No situation and no human. After hearing this, I hope there is a very big desire and thirst inside of us To say to ourselves, so what is this? So how do I do it? But I'm afraid that the people listening really don't have that question. I'm actually afraid that people are going to check out pretty soon. If you haven't checked out yet. I'm going to explain to you why. First of all, what is the definition of anava? So before I tell you the definition, I'd like to make you aware of a very big issue that all of us have. Most definitions in life of important matters, important concepts, we don't really know or understand properly. Meaning, if I tell you, do you know what anava is? You'd say, Hebrew, anava. So those who know Hebrew will say, yeah, I know what it means. And if I don't tell you, if you don't know Hebrew, I'll say, oh, it means humility. Oh yeah, I got it. In your mind right now, there is a definition to anava. Nobody here has just now for the first time heard about this concept. But here's the danger that lies ahead. Is that whatever it is in your mind that you think anava is, it just may be wrong. And anava isn't the only concept that we're mistaken on. And I'm going to explain why 
even though you could translate the word anavat to humility, chances are that we don't really know what it means. The definitions that we've picked up in life about certain concepts didn't come necessarily because we sat in front of a book or we learned from a great person what it actually means. Where did people learn what anava is? Where did you learn it from? So I'll tell you, probably you heard it once in your home. Maybe your father once described someone as a humble man. Maybe you were at a funeral and they described someone as a humble man because he didn't take credit for something that he did. Someone gave charity and no one knew about it. Oh, he's a humble man. There was a quiet man that always sat in the back row in shul. And then they were talking about it. Oh, he's a humble man. So you took all the words of humility that were described in your life maybe by your family, maybe by rabbis, maybe by the street, maybe by newspapers. And you took all of those words and all of those experiences and you came up in your mind with a definition of humility. So now you hear the word humility, right away there is something in your mind that you think is humility. Now it could be completely wrong, it could be completely off, it wasn't taught to you in a real way from beginning to end, yet we're so confident with our understanding of these concepts, so confident that we could sit in a class like this and say, oh, I've been there, done that. Oh, is is this a humility class again? We learned about that last year. I remember hearing about that. Well, good. Teach me something I don't know. Teach me a concept that's new to me. Don't waste my time with things I already know. So what happens? A, we probably have the wrong definition. B, we're so confident in the wrong definition that it's right that we don't even bother listening about what it might really be. And that's a fatal error. Because when you approach things in life that you're learning as if you already learned it, it doesn't allow you to learn anything real. If you approach this class as if, oh, I already got it, It's a terrible mistake because you can't learn anything. It's like a sponge full of water. It could be very dirty water, but as long as it's full of water, you can't put any new water in there. If in our mind we have this subject clear, there's nothing for you to learn. When you enter a subject, you have to come in with a fresh mind. A, Because maybe what you know is not even true. That's a big problem. B, even if what you know is true, you learned it when you were five, or seven, or ten, or twelve. Which means you didn't really get it then. 
Or maybe you did get it then, but not really in the depth of the concept. So your whole life, either you have the wrong understanding of humility, or you have the right understanding, but with a very, very elementary level understanding. Or you don't really understand it in its depth and how much relevance it has to every movement of our lives. So that's why I'm warning you today that although humility is not something new that you never heard about, but beware that you should approach it, not only humility, any class and any subject. When you come to learn something, you would be smart to empty out your sponge for the class. You open up a book, empty out your sponge, you come in to understand it new again. Whether it's a Gemara, or it's a Humash, where it's the story of creation, or the story of Noah, or the story of Abraham, stories you've heard 50 times, clear out your sponge. Don't come into a class thinking, oh, I got this one. Even if you do have it, come in again fresh. That's why it says, Adam ki amut be'ohel. If you want to really learn, the right way, you have to make it like you're dead. So simply it means, what does it mean like you're dead? It means you're dead to the world. For the moment, don't think about anything else, don't call anybody, don't be bothered while you're learning something, just keep the world out for an hour or two. That's a simple meaning. But it doesn't just only mean keep the world out, it means even keep your information out. Take your information that you know and just park it on the side. Give yourself a chance. Now you're 20, now you're 30, now you're 40. And if you're lucky, you're 70 or 80. If you're lucky, you're even 90. You're lucky. Why do I say you're lucky? Because the older you get, the more your ability to understand comes on a deeper level. A 13-year-old just can't understand with a certain depth. just doesn't work. It takes time for the mind to be able to hear things and understand them deeper. So the older you are, the more you could learn. But not if you shut your mind out. Not if you say, oh, I already heard that subject. Oh, I learned about Abraham Avinu with his guests. I know that story. We've been talking about it for 40 years now. I got it. Big mistake. Because if you learn that story again at the age of 50, and the last time you learned it was at the age of 7, you'll see a whole new story. You never even knew the story compared to what you're going to know. It is that way in everything that we learn. I give you my advice. Every time you learn something, whether it's from a book or from a lecture, you just empty your sponge for the moment. And just take it new. Understand it new. Give your mind the chance to understand things and to live them on a much higher level than when you first got them. I had to give you this. Because I felt I'm going to lose everybody. Not so much that I'm worried about myself if you get lost and go to sleep. But I'm worried that you would miss 
the most integral part of what's going to make awesome relationships in your life. That would be a big pity to lose out on the recipe of greatness in all relationships, from the Creator down. Baruch is the key. But it doesn't happen because you went to a class and heard about it. You need to hear what it means. And we got to stop practicing it. But the first thing is to understand it clear. And that's my job today. To give you clarity on the subject. From real sources. At an age today that you could understand it. Just empty out whatever's in there. Whatever you know about humility, just delete it. Before I tell you what it is, first I'm going to tell you what it's not. This kind of subject, there are a lot of misconceptions. Much humility actually is arrogance. Much of the humility we see people practice is just another type of arrogance, unfortunately. First, I'm going to give you a counterfeit humility. There's a cute story about a man, a young man, who was very gifted, very big Talmud Chacham, very good looking, comes from beautiful roots, just had everything going for him. And it came time for Shiduchim. So the one that was helping him with the shiduchim kept offering him, so what about this one? And he would make it a face like, nah, I don't think that's for me. I mean, sometimes it's not for you. It's okay, but it wasn't that kind of not for me. It was like, not for me. So this happened once, it happened twice, it happened 10 times. It happened 50 times. Every girl he would bring up to him and say, nah, not for me. So after a while, the rabbi tells this young man, listen, you're a beautiful person. You have a lot going for you. But you have one thing that you're missing. I think you have to work on it. He says, you need anava. You need a little more humility in your life. He says, okay. The rabbi says, I accept. He says, okay, let's take a break from the shiduchim business. Give me a year or so to work on my anava. Nice. It's not a one hour class. Year is up. They meet again. The rabbi says, Are you ready now? He says, Rabbi, I'm ready. He gives him this one. He says, no, not for me. He gives him another one. Not for me. Same attitude. So the rabbi says, I don't get it. Did you take a year off to study anava or gaava? What were you studying? He says, Rabbi, I give you my word. 
this year, not only did I study Anava, he says, this year I actually became an Anav. He says, I don't understand, but every girl I give you, you give me the same attitude that you gave me last year. He says, Rabbi, what can I tell you? He says, last year, I wasn't even Anav. And this girl wasn't good enough for me. This year with Anava, <laughs> now it's me plus Anava. So for sure, nobody hears for me. You understand the story? Unfortunately, Anava is very often a reason to be Ga'ava. In fact, I will go out on the line and say that most anava in our society is gaava plus. They say a story about a bahor in yeshiva. Even in yeshiva they have this challenge. A bahor came from a yeshiva had a different approach to Musar where they learned, they spoke about the greatness of a human being and how elevated he is and how he needs to understand how great he is. This way he'll live up to his great potential. That's the yeshiva he was in called Slabatka in Europe. But then he switched yeshivot, he went to another yeshiva it's called Nevardak, it's a different kind of yeshiva. They have a little different approach. Their approach is to become great. You have to realize you're nothing. You have to know you're nothing. Who are you? Compared to the creator of the world, you're nothing. I mean, they're both true. We're great and we're nothing. They were stressing the nothing part. So now he's in yeshiva. He's in yeshiva. Now came time to learn Musar. And he's watching. There's hundreds of boys in the yeshiva learning Musar. They take their shtender. No books. Usually they have a book of Musa to read, to learn. Mesilat Yasharim, Havot Levavot. This one, no books. He sees, he's watching what's going on. He sees each guy by Ishtenda saying, I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. Who am I? Each boy is trying to internalize that he's a nothing. Very strange, never saw that before. By the second day, he already learned. So the second day, he takes a shtenda also. He starts saying, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. Who am I? Some guy next to him says, I don't understand you. You're here two days. Already you think you're a nothing? He says, okay. He says, who do you think you are? That already in two days you think you're nothing. The idea of that story is a very deep idea. It means that very often becoming an anav it itself becomes arrogance. So be careful of that. That's called mezuyefet in Hebrew. Mezuyaf means something counterfeit. It's not real. It's fake. 
So here's some misconceptions. If I would tell you right now, coming into this room, just be careful, right now, within a minute or two, coming into this room will come in the most humble man in the world today. From 8 billion people. He's coming in. He's voted most humble by the creator of the world. He's really the most humble. He's coming in right now. Okay, you're excited to see who is the most humble man. What are you expecting to see? I bet most people are looking to see this all hunched over person who could hardly walk, probably has a cane, trying to get his, find his place. His voice doesn't come too loud, you can hardly hear him. He talks so low, you can't talk, you can't talk, you can't hear him. Our imagination of humility is weakness. A weak person. But that's very, very mistaken. Because guess what? The most humble man that ever lived was a man who stood up in front of Paro. It took courage to stand in front of Paro, to walk into his palace without a meeting, without a schedule. In fact, the Torah points it out. Torah says, They would stand up and talk to Paro. It took courage to stand up in front of the most powerful man in the world. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't look weak. Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who told Paro, demanding, let my people go. Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who split the sea. Moshe Rabbeinu is fighting with angels about the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu is pleading with God, no, you cannot destroy these people. When Hashem told him, I'm destroying them by the Egel, he says, no, you destroy them, you destroy me. We're together. That's no weakness. That's a strong person. Moshe Rabbeinu stood up to Korah and all the people with him. There was no weakness in that battle. Nobody in this room looks at Moshe Rabbeinu as a weak person because he wasn't. So obviously being weak has nothing to do with humility. Being weak means just that, you're weak. Nothing else. In fact, very often, being weak is not connected to humility at all. Sometimes weak people can be very arrogant. There's no connection. Sometimes it's their situation that doesn't allow them to yell and scream. But in their heart and mind, they would. They just can't do it. Weakness has nothing to do with humility. One of the most popular translations of humility is that a person who has humility denies their talent, denies their good looks. Meaning a humble person, when they're told how good they are, they say, no, 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 no. You got the wrong person. Oh, I heard yesterday you helped so much in that Charity campaign. Oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't me. You got the wrong person. 
And everyone knows it's you. So they walk away saying, wow, what a humble person. Amazing. Look at them. Not only they do good, but they also deny it. Amazing. What humility. Amazing. Someone tells you, you look great. Say, no, I don't. Besides, it's a terrible way to reply to someone who's trying to give you a compliment. But it's a blatant lie. You're lying. Since when did humility become a place to sheker? You did something good, you deny it? That's called humility? That's called silliness. It's called falsehood. How many times has it happened to you? How many times have we done this? I bet every person has done this numerous times in their life when they were complimented for something that they did. And they said, nah, nah, it's no big, it's no big deal. In your mind you're thinking, oh yeah, big deal and more. But because you're humble, you have to say nah. Wow, you have such a good head. You're so smart. Go tell a boy right now in high school. Hi, oh, he's so smart. Nah, not really. I'm a regular guy. Because of our misconception, because you don't understand what the word means, so we think that when someone gives a compliment to us, we're supposed to deny it, and there you go, humility. Like I mentioned before, actually, all those comments are called ga'ava plus. Just another form of arrogance. That not only you want to be recognized for what you did, but you also want to be recognized for being humble about it. You want people to talk about you. Oh, you're so humble. It's silly. It's wrong. Again, it's what we picked up in the streets. And we assumed that's humble. Someone gives you a compliment, you say, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for noticing. You could say, thank Hashem that I have a good head. Just be honest. Don't be foolish. Don't try to fool people. Someone gets up to speak and says, who am I to speak? You ever hear that? Who am I to speak? And then they speak for three hours. <laughs> like, what, what kind of, it's nonsense. It's nonsense, it's stupidity. I'm a nobody to say anything. If you're nobody, then don't say anything. But if you're supposed to speak, get up and speak. Stop with the nonsense. Say, I appreciate the opportunity. I thank Hashem, He gave me this opportunity to do something. I'm not sure if I could do it great, but I'm going to try. Great, simple. 
We hear this all the time. Every event you go to, you hear this talk. It develops the wrong ideas. Even knowing our spiritual achievements and being aware of them is not called arrogance. For example, someone tells you, wow, I see how much you've grown over the last five years. You really have grown tremendously. Your midot, your chokhmah. I see that you're spiritually on a much higher level. Even there, humility is not to say no. Being aware of your spiritual accomplishments doesn't make you not humble. I'll give you a great example, just in case you think I'm over-exaggerating. By the famous story of the death of Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu were the two great children of Aharon. And during the inauguration of the Mishkan, first day, it was a big celebration. The first day of the Mishkan where we came, come to serve God. And on that day, Nadav and Avihu get killed. What a, we would call that a disaster. But there was a heshbon for that. There was a certain godly calculation for that, which is not for this class, beyond the scope of this class. But bottom line, Moshe tells Aharon, after this tragedy took place, Moshe tells Aharon and says, by the way, I knew this was going to happen. Who asher diber Adonai lemor? Hashem already told me about this beforehand. He told me, Bikrovai, those who are closest to me, Ekadesh, I will become sanctified. Somehow through the death of great people in the inauguration, there will be a Kiddush Hashem beyond the scope of this class. I'm not going to go into why. It's not the point now. So says Moshe to Aharon, his brother, I knew this was going to happen. Hashem already told me, Bikrovai Ekadesh, I'm going to be sanctified by the death of those who are closest to me, by the greatest people in generation. And listen to what he tells his brother Aharon. He says, Amar lo Moshe le Aharon, Aharon Ahi, my brother, I knew that this is going to happen. Vehayiti sabur, but I thought, O bi, O becha. When Hashem says the greatest people in the generation are going to die in the inauguration to create a Kiddush Hashem, so I automatically thought it was going to be me or it was going to be you. But now I realize that your children may in some way be greater than us. Wait, Moshe, the humble man, when God says the greatest person in the generation is going to die, thought it was him? Where is the humility there? Someone says, who is the greatest person in this room? And someone says, me. You all laugh and say, what? You? 
Isn't that show you're not so great? If you could raise your hand, that means you're not so great. But you see, it's not like that. Even being aware that you're the greatest person on the planet doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you honest. If you really are, then it's honest. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, when you, there's nothing wrong when you look around the room and you realize you're the smartest person here or you're the most wise person there. So you need to step up. Nothing wrong with that. And if that's still not enough, I'm going to show you a Gemara that's awesome. And it's, when you read it, you're like, what is this Gemara? Today you won't be so shocked because I already prepared you. But the Gemara in Masechet Sota is talking about how the death of certain great people was irreplaceable. For example, the Gemara says that when Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa passed away, it was the end of men of action. He was a man of action. There was nobody like him anymore. You know how they say sometimes, after him, there was no charity like he gave. So in that generation, they said, after Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa passed away, people of action were no longer on the same level. They said, oh, when Rabbi Yosef Ketanta, when he passed away, righteousness ended. Nobody on that level anymore. When Rabbi Mishemet Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai, the Gemara says, when Rabban Yohanan ben Zakai passed away, Batel Ziva Chokma, the glory of wisdom was no longer. With him went all the glory of wisdom. He was a glorious man of wisdom. Then the Gemara says, Mishemet Rabbi, when Rabbenu Akadosh, when he passed away, Batla Anava. Humility and fear of sin, no more. Never did we have a humble man again on the level of Rabbeinu Akadosh. He was the most humble man. That's the Gemara says. In the Bet Midrash, the Gemara reports, when Rav Yosef learning this Braita, they're learning this in the Bet Midrash. Rav Yosef says, I beg to argue. What do you need back to argue? So this Braita is wrong. When Rabbi passed away, fear of sin was no longer the same. Correct. But take out the word Anava. Don't say after him there were no more humble people on his level. Don't say that. They told him, why? Who do you know that's on the level of humility today like Rabbeinu HaKadosh? What are you talking about? Of course, after he passed away, there's nobody humble like him. Who do you know that's more humble? He says, De'ika ana. He says, what do you mean? Me. He says, me. I have the same level of humility as Rabbeinu HaKadosh. Amazing. You laugh when he says, you start saying, what are they talking about? Are they nuts? The reason why we think they're nuts is because we have a certain translation of humility from the street, and we come to try to learn this, and we say, does it make sense? But this makes sense. If you know you're humble, that doesn't mean you're arrogant. It means you're honest. It means you're real. There's nothing wrong with that. So denying your qualities, denying your talents, 
Guy tells you, wow, you have a beautiful voice. Tell the Hazan, what a beautiful Kaddish. Wow, gorgeous. Usually Hazan say, eh. One rabbi once, he heard the Hazan say, nah, once too many times. The next time he told him, nah, he's, by the way, you're right. It was the worst Kaddish I ever heard in my life. I didn't want to tell you, but really it was horrible. So the Hazan got all crazy. What do you mean? Why are you saying that? Why are you just what do you mean? You just told me a second ago, nah. What a lesson. What a great lesson. Don't say nah. Don't say that. So nice Kaddish, say thanks. That's it. Another misconception in humility is that a humble person is a person who has a low self-esteem. Doesn't think much of himself doesn't give much value to himself. He thinks he has no value. He's humble. He thinks he's a nobody. We will soon see, I'm not sure we'll get to it this week, but we will soon see that actually it's the opposite. That the only way to be truly humble is to be full of self-esteem. Having low self-esteem doesn't make you humble. It makes you a person who doesn't appreciate the greatness of the gift of life that God gave you. When a person looks at himself and says, I have no value. So basically you're telling the creator of the world who made you and says you're the purpose of creation. And you're basically telling him your creation has no value. That's not very nice. Imagine someone makes something so beautiful, works so hard on it, and said, this is my life achievement. And you say, ah, it's really not worth anything. That's not nice. If you look at yourself and say, I have no value, that's a real eye in our language. You're telling the creator of the world that his prized creation, mankind, is not valuable? That's terrible. So no, having low self-esteem doesn't make you humble. It makes you a person who lacks either intelligence or lacks appreciation. And again, we'll soon see that only with self-esteem you can have true humility. So those are some of the misconceptions of humility. So what is humility? What is it? Translation. What is anava? What does it mean? Let's get rid of all the old stuff. Out. Out with the old. What is it? So we turn to the Misilat Yesharim. And the Ramchal says very beautifully, very on point. He says, humility is... Heyot ha'adam bilti mahshiv atzmo mishum ta'am she'yeh which means that a person doesn't give the value to himself. Means he knows he's valuable. He knows what he has. He knows what God gave him. He knows what he made. But he doesn't attribute 
the importance to himself. Humility means you are valuable. You are important. But you're not the reason why you're important. It's not you that made yourself important. So it's the right address. Yes, you're very important. But just don't take credit for it. Because you didn't do it. Someone says, oh wow. Tall, beautiful. You're so tall. Look in the mirrors. Look at yourself. Ah, look at that beauty. What a beautiful face. Ah. And now you walk around with action because of your beautiful face. Meaning, when you see people with not such beautiful faces, you make yourself more important than them in the way you talk to them, in the way you walk around them, in the way you treat them. Why? Because you have a beautiful face. That's called living a lie. That's called ga'ava. Not because you don't have a beautiful face. Because it's not you that made your face. Come on, be honest. Stop lying to yourself. It's an obvious thing. How can anyone look at their natural gifts that God gave them and say, wow, I am so important because of that. You're not important because of that. You didn't make that. Enjoy it. You want to enjoy what God gave you? Enjoy it. Don't take credit. Don't walk around thinking, oh, it's me. I did this. You didn't do it. God did it for you. Anava says the Mesilat Yesharim is that a person who understands Asher en hatehila vehakavod reuim lo. Honor and praise are not fitting for you or for me. Kol sheken, all the more so. al she'ar To be over others. To show yourself over others. I'm better than you. We don't say that in words, but we like to do things because we don't like to sound ugly. Nobody likes saying, I'm better than you. Even arrogant people know arrogance is ugly. It's obvious. But we do other things to tell people, I'm better than you. We walk a certain way to tell them, I'm better than you. We talk a certain way with a certain tone, I'm better than you. We raise our voice a certain way, I'm better than you. We do different things in different ways just to tell people, just want to tell you, I'm better than you. You know why? Because I'm taller than you. Because my face is nicer than yours. My nose is nicer than your nose. My hair is better than yours. When a person takes credit for natural gifts, it's actually absurd. It doesn't make any sense. It's so obvious. But yet, it's possible to live in such a fake reality, in such an ugly reality. Anava is, someone says, wow, you have beautiful eyes. Don't say thank you. Say thank Hashem. Don't say, oh yeah, what can I say? What can I say? What can I say? You're right, I do. Don't do that. 
You could say thank you for the compliment, but really say thank Hashem. Just give credit, just be honest. Humility is the epitome of honesty. Just be honest. Say thanks to the one who gave it to you. Just don't take credit for something you didn't do. It's ugly. It's very simple. Very simple in translation, but it's not so easy in the way we live our lives. Because we live sometimes a very fake life of Sheker. Taking credit for things we didn't do, like I said, is ugly even to the person who's doing it. There's a story I once shared with you. It's a cute story about a very wealthy man who wanted to give out a lot of charity but didn't have time to meet every person that would need. So he's looking to hire some person, a real person of emunah, ne'eman, someone trustworthy, that he could give him every week a bag of money and he'll give it out to all the people that need money. He's looking, where is he going to find a guy like this? Give a guy a bag of money, already you lost him. So he found, look, 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 finally he found a guy, perfect candidate. Ne'eman to the T. He gives him the first week, Sunday he comes in, gives him a whole big bag of money. He says, here it is, give it out. So he puts a sign. Once you put a sign for charity, people are coming in from all over the place, knocking on his door. First guy walks in, says, you know, I really need money. My daughter's getting married. Making a wedding is very hard for me. Takes out some money from the bag. Says, here, enjoy mazal tov, mabruk. The guy counts the money, he can't believe it. He says, you know, you're so kind. This, you're so sweet, you're so beautiful. How you give of your money. How you take care of people with the money that God gave you. It's so special. Now the guy, he doesn't know what to say. On one hand, he knows it's not his money. On the other hand, it feels really good when someone tells you you're so kind and you're so special. And there's no one like you, Mafi Mitla. No, he doesn't know what to do. He's struggling. If he tells the guy it's not me, it's over. So he falls to his yesara. Instead of saying, listen, it's not me, I'm just a shaliyah, I'm a messenger. He's like, I know, I really appreciate it. You know, I appreciate your nice words. I do the best I can. You know, makes like he gave it. The second guy does the same thing. Again, by the 10th guy already, it's all over him. He's just, he's loving it. He's loving every compliment he gets. People come in. He's already waiting for them to talk. And this is going on for months. And he's very honest. He gives every dollar to the right place. One Sunday, as a poor man is sitting there, the rich guy comes with a big bag of money. And he tells the guy, here, take it. And on his way out, the poor man looks at this rich guy and says, he says, nerve of you. He says, what? He says, you know who this man is? Do you know how much money he gives out every week? You come in and just throw the bag in and say, here it is. You should be on the floor bowing to him. You should be kissing his feet. You know what he's doing for all the people in this city? As the poor man is saying this, the guy in his chair, he doesn't know where to hide. He wants to go somewhere underground. It's so ugly. It's so embarrassing. He's taking the credit. 
for something he didn't do. But so long as the rich man is not there, he kind of blocked him out of his life and lived in a make-believe island called himself and just lived in that world. But the minute he saw the man, all of a sudden it got very embarrassing. That's the way it is with the Creator. When you put a wall between you and the Creator, you don't see him. If you don't see him, you take all the credit for yourself. When all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, he's right there. What am I doing? It's embarrassing. It's ugly to take credit for something you didn't do. You know, one of the most difficult areas in anava is when you actually accomplish. That's hard. I mean, it's silly. Someone tells you your eyes look good and you take credit for that. That's like low level. But there, let's say you worked hard. You thought of a great idea. You started making money. You traveled. You had meetings. You worked and you thought and you came up and you hired and you did and you shipped and you didn't sleep nights. And then you were blessed. You made a lot of money. You accomplished. I give money as an example. It could be other things too. Now, here it's much harder than blue eyes. It's much harder than your height. Because here, you actually did something. You were involved in it. You made it. If you sat home, that wouldn't have happened. And there it becomes so much more difficult to be anav. But let's not forget. Let's not forget. That the idea that you had came from your brain. And guess what? You don't own your brain. God gave you your brain. It's not yours. And even if your brain thought of an idea, the ability to do it, who gave you the energy? Who gave you the legs to walk? Who gave you the hands to write? Who gave you that ability to sit and talk to people? To look at them in the face and they look at you. You know how much of what was accomplished was you? You know, here's a question. Can a person take ever credit for what they do? Ever. Can you ever take credit for anything that you do? Anything. So again, for your eyes, zero. Unless you... Maybe put some nice makeup on. Maybe you could take a little credit. I'm not sure. But the question is, can you take credit for anything that you did in life? Can you ever say, yes, that was me. I did that. I'm taking credit for it. I did it. Can you ever say that? So the answer is, yes. But it's very, very tiny. Let me tell you where you could take credit. You could take credit for one thing and one thing only in life. That you made the right choice. That's it. You have a, you have a choice to sit home and do nothing. You chose to work. That choice 
Not the working part. Because the working part, you needed God's energy. Everything else is not you. But the fact that you chose to get out of your bed, to go work, that you get credit for. To come and pray and learn and come to class. For example, coming to this class today. Do you get any credit for that? Do you get any credit for that? Answer is, one little part of it. The fact that you could have sat somewhere else and done nothing, or the equal of that, and you decided you're going to get up, even though it's a nice, beautiful, sunny day now. I hope you don't regret coming here. (laughs) And you actually made the choice, I'm going to go to learn Torah. It's a mitzvah to learn Torah. I'm doing that. Now, the actual getting up from the couch, you don't get credit for. The, The driving in your car, you don't get credit for. The actual sitting down and listening, you don't get The understanding, you don't get credit for. Because none of that is you. The fact that you want to listen, that you get credit for. The fact that you want to be here, you get credit for. The decision is the only thing Hashem says, that I'm leaving up to you. That's all yours. But everything else, I do. So, for example... In today's class, what percentage is me? Even me. I came to this class, I made a choice. I prepared for this class. I left my house to come to this class. I get a little credit for that, for making that choice. Everything else, I could have came here and my voice wouldn't come out. Hashem allowed my voice to come out. He gave me energy. I have health right now. I could be here. I could sit in front of you and talk. It's beautiful. So many things have to have happened right today Baruch Hashem, nobody's in the hospital in my family because otherwise I couldn't be here right now. So thank God, things in my life, thousands of things probably are going on okay so I could be here. All of that's not me. My choice is me, nothing else. So if we had a hundred pieces, one is mine and one is already too much. But I want to give a little something. One percent, 99, not me. I could take credit for the 1%. But be careful just to take credit for the 1%. Don't take credit for the whole thing. Because you know what happens if you take credit more than you should? Should I tell you? I'll tell you what happens. And with this I end, even though I have a lot more to say. I'm going to cut it short today. It says here, it says... You could leave any time you want. I don't look up. Says the Mesilad Yesharim. Gemaram Birachot. If you come to take credit for what you did, then you lose the credit. And he brings an example of a great Jew by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wrote a sefer. But Hazal tell us that this sefer that he wrote is not called by his name, Nehemiah. It's called Ezra. It's not called Nehemiah. Why would you write it? Imagine you wrote a book 
for history. People write books just to be remembered. Nehemiah writes this beautiful sefer. It makes it to Tanakh. And they don't call it by his name. Poor man. He wrote a book. Why? They call it by somebody else's name. They call it Sefer Ezra. Nehemiah wrote it. Why did he lose credit for writing the book? The Gemara says, Which means he took credit for himself. When he came to ask Hashem for something, he said, Hashem, after all that I've done for you, after all the mitzvot that I've done, all the things that I've accomplished, that's the way he approaches tefillah. Hashem says, oh, you're taking credit for all what you did, what you did? And guess what? You lose credit for what you did. Now let me explain to you the logic of that. It's very simple. The logic is that even though we only do 1% out of 100, Hashem wants to give us all 100. Hashem says, you came to shul, you learned, you understood, you worked hard. I'm giving you all the credit as if you did it. I'm willing to give you my part too. But the minute you take credit for what you didn't do, Hashem says, then I'm going to take my credit back. I'm willing to give it to you. But the minute you say, I did it, I take back my part. And if Hashem takes back his part, there's not much left for us. So therefore, a person should never take credit for things he didn't do. Train ourselves to be honest. To look at the world in an honest way and ourselves in an honest way. To be real. To recognize what does come from us, what doesn't come from us. That is the first lesson of humility. There's a lot more on this subject. We're going to stop right here. But soon, next week, we will start to see how this midah of anava is the true recipe of the great home and great relationships in our life. Because this anava, this, this translation I just gave you has so many branches, has thousands of branches. It comes out into everything that we do. And if we master the translation and start applying it, everything around us will change in such a good way. But Hashem will continue next week. Baruch Amen ve'amen.